Well, brothers and sisters, it is good to be with you this morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and take them and turn to Isaiah chapter 44. And while you turn there, I will say a few words of introduction. I'll start with a question. What is the driving force of your life? You wake up, it's on your mind. You go to bed, it's on your mind. The thing that if it were gone today, the totality of your existence would no longer have meaning. You got it? In 1643, the English Parliament convened the Assembly of Divines at Westminster. And they were charged to put together a confession and a larger and a shorter catechism. And in 47, they issued the shorter catechism, which began with this question, what is man's chief end? Which answers, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Today, we open to Isaiah, and Isaiah seeks to direct our hearts and our minds and our affections to live for Him. And He seeks to pull us away from all the things that this world seeks you to serve and to pull you to see the glory and the majesty and the grandeur of the Lord. And He does it in great ways. And so let me pray for the reading of God's Word, and we will read Isaiah 44, verses 6 through 23, and then we'll jump in. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, as Alex prayed, uh, we cannot hear unless you open our ears to speak, O Lord. We listen. Come and give us ears by your Holy Spirit, eyes to see, ears to hear, and wills to do that which you command. We pray that we would see you more clearly and that supremely we would see the Lord Jesus. And being and seeing him, we would be transformed into his image. For it is true that we become like what we worship. So help us to worship him now. In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah chapter 44, this is the word of the Lord. So hear what the Spirit says to you. Beginning in verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you? from of old and declared it, and you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock, I know not of any. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a God or casts an idol that is, a prof that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble, let them stand forth. They shall be terrified, they shall be put to shame together. Verse 12. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with a hammer and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no, no water and is faint. 
The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars. Or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He, he uh, kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Ah, I am worn, I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into his God, his idol, and falls down to it and worship it. And he prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. Deliver me, for you are my God. Verse 18, They know not, nor do they discern. For he has shut their eyes, so that they cannot see, and their hearts, so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, Half of it I burned in the fire, I also baked bread on its coals, I roasted meat and I've eaten, and shall I make the rest of it and do an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? Remember these things, O Jacob, and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you... You are my servant. O Israel, you, are not, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains. O forest and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. Amen. This ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its truths on each of our hearts. Brothers and sisters, today I have a proposition and two points for you. The proposition is a question. Who do you live for? Who do you live for? Do you live for the delusions of idols? Or do you live for the glory of the Redeemer? Do you live for the delusions of idols or the glory of the Redeemer? Let's begin. The delusions of idols. Sometimes it's helpful when you're reading the Bible to read it in reverse and to read the end before you jump to the beginning. And in verse 21, we get the picture of who God is speaking to. That he's speaking not just simply to the world, though it does have effects for the world. He says, remember these things, O Jacob, and Israel, for you are my servant. Who is he speaking to? He's speaking to the church. He's speaking to God's people. And he's speaking to them about the dangers and the folly and what happens to those who worship and go to idols. And you say, well, that's strange. I mean, we don't, we don't worship idols, right? Well, let's see the contrast. You are the target of what he writes. And so see how he begins. Let's see the delusions of idols. He begins in verse 6 by stating who he is. The majesty of God is set forth in verses 6 through 8. He says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. And besides me, there is no God. 
You see that we open this passage in verse 6 with opposition. The Lord says, besides me, there is none other. The first and last, none in between, none in the middle, no competitors. And this isn't the first time the Lord begins by describing himself when majestic turns to set himself against the folly of idols. If you go back just to chapter 40, you'll recall that the section begins when he says in verse 9, he tells Israel to behold their God. And then he says in verses 12 and 13 and 14, describing himself, the God who's measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, the God who, who else has measured the spirit of the Lord or gives man, uh, shows, what man shows him his counsel. Who did he consult to make, the, uh, to make all things? And the answer is obviously no one. That God is greater than all else. He's not only the greatest and the supreme, he's the only one in his class. He has no one to compete with. And you see in chapter 44, verse 6, the gods you desperately need. You see three offices of the Lord set forth. Thus says the Lord, the God who can direct you, the prophet, the king of Israel, the one who can rule you and subdue you to himself, the one who can defeat your enemies. And then he says, Thus says the Lord, the prophet, the king of Israel, the king and his redeemer, the priest, the one who can save you from your idols, the one who can save you from the things that rule and conquer you. When the Lord begins his speech in verse 6, he says, I am the one whom you desperately need. As all these idols come to fool your hearts in delusions and more corruptions, he says, listen to me, for there is no competitor with me. I am the greatest, and I alone will be exalted. The prophet, the priest, and the king, the God who can actually save you, speaks. And it is interesting. You'll see it. He says in verse 6, and you get the, the connection biblically, theologically. He says, I am the first, and I am the last. And that connects with Jesus. Remember in Revelation 1, Verse 8, when Jesus in verse 5 says, I rule the kings of the earth, meaning I am supreme. Then he says in verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And the Lord here in Isaiah 44 is saying, I am the one of supreme worship. And Jesus in Revelation 1 saying, I am the one who your heart does an obvious question. He says in verse 7, who is like me? And the answer is, no one, right? The answer is obviously this God who is the first and the last, who, who, who is the, total, the only Lord, and he asks, who is like me? You say, well, that seems like an obvious question. But God does not ask bad questions. He asks revealing questions. And we say, well, obviously no one is like you, Lord, but that's not true in reality for us, is it? Because we compare all kinds of things to him. He's going to go on in verses 9 through 20 in the idolatry of God's people. And it's an idolatry to which none of us are exempt. As Calvin said, man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols. As the people of Israel, after they were redeemed by the Lord from the Red Sea and brought into the wilderness, 
and they're given uh, they're, and Moses is up on the burning mount as as clouds engulf Sinai and then uh, as he's up there what do they do they make a golden calf and call it Yahweh and I want you to know that things have not changed God's people still go and chase idols as first uh, John ends his letter the very last verse he says uh, little children Keep yourselves from idols. Why? Because it's a danger. And so let's see both the shame and the folly of idolatry, the delusions of these idols. In verse 9, he begins by talking about these people who fashion idols. He said, all who fashion idols are nothing. And the things they delight in do not profit. In verse 9, the Lord begins by addressing those who make idols. And he'll, he will say in verse 11, all his companions, that means all who also go after idols, will be ashamed. So it's not only those who make them, but those who follow those who make them, right? Those who follow after those idols. There is a really interesting uh, word here. You see that word in verse 9 where he says, all who fashion idols are nothing? It's the word uh, tohu, which is the word that occurs in Genesis 1-2, that the Lord made the heavens and the earth, watohu, wavohu, you know, out of uh, uh, formlessness and void, he makes all things out of nothing. I want you to see that there is a danger of idolatry. That you become like what you worship. And these men who had fashioned idols, they became like what they had made. And the very, the very problem which they sought to escape by running to idols was not answered. And isn't this true in our culture? People, they form things which they attach themselves to so closely, and they end up losing all of reality, whether it's uh, a particular way they identify themselves, or whether it's uh, they, 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 they give themselves to fame or reputation or they give themselves to all these things and seek satisfaction, perhaps in really good things, spouses or families, and they end up just consumed because they make all other things supreme, where only the Lord was supposed to make them, was supposed to be their supreme being. And Psalm 115, verse 8, speaking of idolatry, says, those who make idols become like them. You become like what you worship. The things that you delight in you will become like. I wonder what you delight in. I wonder what you take the most joy in. What, it's, it's pretty obvious, the things you talk about, right? You take great joy in the Lord and in His work, in the Christ who all of Scripture is proclaiming. Is He your joy? Because if He is, if He's the one, the object of your worship, you're going to be transformed, right? You're going to become more and more like what you worship. But if you delight in other things more than Him, you'll be transformed into that image, right? I wonder what things take priority in your life. It's not only the craftsmen, but as I said, it's also the people who follow them. In verse 11, their companions also will be put to shame. In Revelation 21, verse 8, speaking about those who are cast into the lake, of fire, he says that all idolaters are cast into it, which poses a great problem for us. Because, brothers and sisters, do, do we not idolize all kinds of things? 
All kinds of things capture our eyes and we, and we, and we go astray, right? And if we were to get our just desserts, then we would be in Revelation 21.8. But the good news of the gospel comes to us saying that Jesus took our place and was treated as though he was an idolater. He went to the cross and bore the punishments for our idolatries that he might be the object of our worship. You remember that when Jesus rose from the dead in Matthew 28, what did they do? They worshipped him and bowed down. The throne room is depicted as though it's circular, and at the center of the throne room in Revelation is the Lord Jesus. As all of heaven bows down before him, we deserve to be put to shame with the idolaters in Isaiah 44, 9-11. But the good news of the gospel tells us that we won't be because Jesus, as the hymn says, paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. And there is a shame also. There's not only a fool, there's not there's not only a shame to idolatry, but there is a foolishness to idolatry. And you see it in this illustration. This illustration is just amazing. It's stuck with me for years. He says in verses 12 through 17. He mentions the ironsmith in verse 12, the carpenter in verse 13, and how they align and make these idols. And he gives you the picture in verses 14 through uh, 15. He says, he cuts down a cedar. He chooses a cypress tree or an oak. He lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. So he chooses a tree. He lets the rain nourish it. It grows up. And then when it gets proper size, he says, I'll cut it down and I'll make an idol. But you know what? I'm not only going to make an idol out of it. I'm going to use half of it to bake my bread. I'm going to eat from it. I'm going to be nour- you know, nourished. And then with part of it, I'll also make a God and and ask it to deliver me. And we read this and we're, we're, I mean, we're in a first world country. We're like, there's no way. There's no way. It seems utterly foolish. Why would anyone worship something they made? But it is ingrained in every man to worship. No matter how far you may stray, everyone worships. The only difference is what you worship. We cry to this world to deliver us all the time. We're not uh, satisfied in our marriage, so you, you, you people go out and about, right? People aren't satisfied with the money in their bank account, and so they pursue riches other ways. They're not satisfied with titles or cars or houses. Just not satisfied. And we cry to this world to deliver us. We're not that different from verse 17. We all long for the security and satisfaction that was present in the Garden of Eden. We all long and we seek that our lives would be, in their totality, satisfied. We seek security in our spouse, in our family, in our work, which are good things, right? You were made to work. 
work was pre-fall. Family is pre-fall. You know, there's, there's nothing wrong with possessions. It's just a problem if they own you and you don't own them. And we ask all sorts of things that will fade to deliver us. And I want you to know that every man knows he needs deliverance, and he just seeks it in all kinds of places. There's a, there's a scale of corruption going on in this passage. First of all, the man knows he's in trouble and knows he needs someone to deliver him, so he makes something to deliver him. And then in verse 20, we learn that the very thing he's made, he has a deluded heart, he's led astray, and he can't deliver himself, so he's going further and further into the bondage of the things he's made. And so if, when we worship idols, we go further and further into corruption, more and more ensnared. And the question becomes, who will deliver us? Verse 20 says that he can't deliver himself, and he can't even say, is there not a lie in my right hand? Who's going to deliver us? And the answer comes, that there is one who can deliver you from idols. The Lord Jesus, who was born to save those who were born in corruption, who was born under the law to fulfill the law, to redeem those who were under the curse of the law. The Lord Jesus, who is, in Colossians 1.15 language, the, the true idol, the idol of God, the one the Lord has set up to be worshipped, the one who has, in Hebrews 1 language, his exact, exact imprint of his nature and his being. That the Lord Jesus, who is the second person of the Trinity, who has taken on flesh, has now become the object of our worship. And not only is he the true object of our worship, but as Matthew 1.21 says, he was born to deliver us. He's born to deliver us into a place where it will be said, Revelation 22, I believe it's verse 5, where there will be no more curse and no more detestable thing when Jesus takes us into his heavenly kingdom. And I wonder for who you live. And I wonder what grabs you. I wonder if you're deluded by idols. If you live for idols. Or if you live for the glory of the Redeemer. You see in verse 21 a call, a command actually. He says in verse 21, I formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. Remember is the command. And isn't it a great command? It is a command that occurs throughout the Bible for God's people to remember. Why do you need to remember? Because we're forgetful. All of us in here are very forgetful. But the grace that is present in God calling a people who, is, who have gone after idols is, is just amazing grace. Here. It is as though Hosea with Gomer, when, when Gomer is going out and prostituting herself, but Hosea is chasing after her and providing for her even when she has nothing. And the Lord in the midst of Israel, his people's folly, pursues us and tells us, remember me. 
Remember who I am. Remember what I have done for you. It is him leaving the 99 who are self-righteous people and pursuing the one that has gone astray. The grandest of loves is displayed in calling us to remember. And I want you to hear it as such. That God this very moment is pursuing you. In this sermon, in this service, He's, he's calling to you with this very word in verse 21 to remember and not go after idols. Do you hear the call? Well, he tells you to remember Him. And such a lovely note. Though we forget Him, we are not that He does not forget us. That God is not like us. See what He says at the end of verse 21. He says, O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. Why does He remember? Because it's who He is. God's never forgot anything. He says, He'll say in Isaiah 49, verses 15 and 16, He'll say, can a woman forget her nursing, can a mother forget her nursing child, that she should not have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraven you upon the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Though you forget God, He does not forget you. Such is His covenant faithfulness to pursue you and woo you and call you to remember Him. And He's calling you here. Uh, I want to be like John Newton at the end of my life. He was 82 when he died. And it's recorded uh, that he, he said these words. My memory is nearly gone. But I remember two things. That I'm a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. I want you to remember the gospel and God. To be like John Newton. The Lord's pursuit has gone to the uttermost. And you see it in verse 22. In verse 22, he says, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. See the length God has gone for a people who forget Him. Goes so far and speaks in the completion sense that I have already blotted out your transgressions. And I ask you, Christian, where do you see your transgressions blotted out? Is it not at the cross? Do you not see in this the great love with which God has loved us, that He has given His Son as the propitiation for our sins, whereby He woos you to Himself? See what He has done. Why would you go after idols for satisfaction? Why would you pursue the things of this world as though they will satisfy you? Instead of taking delight in Him, He's gone all the way. He says He's blotted out our transgressions like a cloud. 
and like a mist, disappear. And he calls us to return to him. You see that in verse 22. Return to me. Why? Because I've redeemed you. You belong to him. And how do you respond? You have the greatness of God in verses 6 through 8. The folly and shamefulness of idols in verses 9 through 20. And you have this amazing grace of the God who pursues us in verses 21 and 22. And he tells you how to respond in verse 23. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth, break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. You see the totality of creation summarized in verse 23. The heavens are to sing. The depths of the earth are to shout. And then he says to break forth into singing the mountains and the forest. All of creation coming together and breaking out into song. And if creation is to respond in such ways for our redemption, how much more should you? How much more should you be a person who sings of the glory of redemption? If creation has such response, we must echo louder. So brothers and sisters, this text lays out two ways for us to live as Alex pointed out two weeks ago. And you can live for idols, or you can live for the Redeemer. One will lead you to utter shame, but the other will lead you to be transformed and be satisfied. For in His right hand are pleasures forevermore. So let us give Him praise and go to Him for satisfaction. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for the glory of Christ. The glory that transcends all the things of this world which he made. And he is the substance. Everything else is just shadows and terrible types that lead us to shame. But he is the one we need. We pray, divest us of idols and lead us to the Savior. For his glory and in his name. Amen.